This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Um, so welcome to Neil Baldwin, um, author and of uh, the newest biography of Martha Graham. Um, welcome, Neil, to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. It's great. Um, Neil, um, would you um, first tell us, um, give us um, some details about the book, um, the where we can buy it, the publication date, um, and um, and whether it's going to be on audio for our for our members? Oh yes. Well, the book is Martha Graham when Dance Became Modern. It was published by Alfred A. Knopf on October twenty fifth. Uh, 2022. It's available on all of the usual online as well as independent bookstore locations. And in fact, yes, there is an audio book which just received um, an earphones award, which I'm very proud of. Uh, but the uh, the woman who reads the book, um, Gabrielle de Queer is her name. Q C U I R. She's sort of has a very uh, sensible, learned, somewhat tongue-in-cheek way of speaking, and she's very theatrical, very histrionic, and she really, without imitating Martha Graham, she captures the kind of ambiance of Martha Graham very well, and it's a very wonderful 19-and-a-half-hour audiobook, so that's out there, too. Congratulations. Um, Your book has um, received a lot of great press. um, And of course, we expect it to win many great awards. Um, Can you tell us um, how you've come, um, how you came to uh, write the biography? Well, it's, uh, it really begins with an epiphany. I I would call it a visceral epiphany. Um, I am now a emeritus professor, but I was for 15 years professor of theater and dance at Montclair State University out here in New Jersey, where I live. And although I have a PhD in American literature, my doctoral dissertation was actually on William Carlos Williams, 
back in the 70s, 1970s. Um, I was hired at Montclair State to join the Department of Theater and Dance and to work with the BFA Performing Arts students on their writing, their critical writing. I started out creating a dramaturgy program for the theater students. And then about a month into it, the chairman of the dance division, whose office was right next to mine, she came over and asked me if I would I like to try and do some of some of the uh, technique, if you will, that I was using with the theater students, come over and work with the dance students in the same way. And I said that I didn't have a quote unquote scholarly training in dance, which is not to say that I didn't know anything about dance, but I was not a quote dance writer, but I certainly was a, a sentient being and I certainly was a person who loved theatricality and loved young people and wanted to help them express themselves. So she asked me to just come and sit in on uh, some of their classes in composition, technique, choreography, dance history, and just sort of be uh, another pair of eyes, as it were. And then we also had a succession of the modern dance companies and artists coming in to set works on our students over the course of the year. And so the first um, rehearsal I went to was Denise Vale was there. She's the, as you probably, I'm sure you know, the uh, senior artistic associate of Mars, the dance company. And she was working with our students on uh, Steps in the Street, which is the iconic sort of centerpiece of Chronicle. And so I sat in the auditorium in, in the middle of the big orchestra there by myself, and I watched this, um, I don't know how to describe, it wasn't really a rehearsal, it was kind of a, 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 vi a vital embodiment of something I had never seen before, which is to say that these young women were dancing in a way that was at once unfamiliar, but at the same time breathtaking and stark and space consuming and angular and visceral and built upon breathing and holding steps and carving, like making sculptures out of your kinesthetic experience. And, uh, you know, the, the, this sort of sense that you're watching people dancing that know that they are dancing. And they're not, they weren't hiding, they weren't, they were being revealed by the technique. The technique was, was an expository thing and it was a visceral thing. And I can't emphasize that too much because um, it was all coming from my abdomen. I didn't know at that time that, where, how important that was in the Graham lexicon. So I left, I went out into the dark, night. It was January. It was very cold. I was walking toward my car, the parking lot. And um, at that point, I was between projects. I had just published a book called The American Revelation, which was a series of essays about American ideals some years before. But I said to myself, I have to do something with and about this in the context of my 
if you look at the sort of trajectory of my biographies over the decades, William Carlos Williams, Van Ray, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, and Mexican mythology, Quetzalcoatl, and these American sort of biographies of signal figures. But but the common thread is the modern the modern idiom. So I was familiar with the modern idiom in other art forms, uh, especially literary, but not in physical terms. And so I decided I would have to immerse myself in that and to cut to the chase. I mean, another four years went by, during which time I didn't tell anybody what I was thinking about. (laughs) I just went to more and more dance recitals and talked to as many choreographers as as came to campus, interviewed almost everybody, you know, from, from Camille A. Brown to Bill T. Jones and every, all kinds of steps in between. And eventually I screwed up enough courage to go meet with Janet Elber, who was the artistic director of Martha Graham company in the, in June of 2012. And I told her what I was thinking about. She gave me her blessing. Um, and I say that in, because it wasn't like a sanctioned or uh, uh, authorized biography, but she told me she thought that I should give it a try based on my background. And then 10 years later, it was a, quite a journey and it was just published. So that's, uh, I know that seems like a long path, but it's a short version. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I think we all come to Martha with that. Um, I want to do that. It's something. See, this is the thing. And this this should be in our inventory because I listened to your interview of your book and you said exactly the same thing. And I thought, well, this is good because, um, you know, knowing your background and having that you are a dancer and that you uh, are steeped in this knowledge and you still had this seizure, as it were, then I thought, well, that's a good sign because that's what it felt like, like kind of like I'm being called. I don't mean that like some kind of, you know, speaking in tongues or anything, but this is, I have to do, I am supposed to do this. Yes. Yes. And you by that. Yes. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's very interesting because I, I actually got that from um, Ethel Winter, one of Martha oh. Graham's dancers. And she said the same thing. She saw a Graham performance and said, that's it. Um, okay. So I, I think it's, you know, it, it carries through authors and dancers, um, perhaps musicians. I don't know. But, um, but you describe, you know, something that, that seems to be inherent. Um, to Graham. Um, tell me a little bit about the periodization of the book, um, where you start and why, where you end and why. Yes. Um, well, I just got back from Pittsburgh. I was I went to Pittsburgh last weekend for three days. Uh, that's where she's from. That's where Martha Graham was born, as many people don't seem to know. Or let me put it another way. I, whoever I write about, I have to go back to the origin. I have to go back to the spirit, what, what, what uh, D.H. Lawrence, I first learned from D.H. Lawrence, calls the spirit of place, and which uh, John Dewey and William Paulus Williams and all my other modern uh, mentors, Ezra Pound and Marianne Moore, and this kind of 
you know, generation of the birth of the new is very wedded to the sense that you have to start by being connected to the ground from which you spring. And so I went to Pittsburgh way, way back at the beginning of my research. That was the first thing I did. And I went back there last weekend to give a talk. And um, the reason I, I stress that is because once you've seen Martha Graham was from Allegheny, Pennsylvania, which is on the northern shore of the of the river, like further away from that core central city of, of Pittsburgh. And when when Martha Graham was born in 1894, uh, she grew up in essentially a little self-contained village of brick houses on the northern edge of Pittsburgh. And she was right on the fringe of the Allegheny Plateau. She was right adjacent. Her house was adjacent to a huge train depot uh, that headed west. It was a gateway to the west. And she played and, and sort of played hide and seek in the forests near her home in the in the unspoiled Indian trails nearby. She was very, very tied into the weather and the landscape and the sort of sense in which she was living at the, the brink of, of the Western land. And I was very taken by that. And so my beginning with her was a spirit of place of where, she, where she was born and grew up. And I walked the streets that she walked and I went to the church that she went to and the school that she went to. And she spent her formative years there. So that was a very important uh, marker for me in terms of America, the American place and the sense that she belonged. And then this, the second thing that, uh, so that's kind of the reason why I started where I started at the very, very beginning. And then just schematically to capture the, the subtitle of my book, which is When Dance Became Modern, I did not decide at the very beginning that I was going to, quote, cut off, cut it off at any particular point. It wasn't like that. It was more that I went through a trajectory of a choreography, and I had to curate very carefully what dances I was going to choose. And because she did 180 dances in the course of her life. So I tried to find dances that were emblematic of the different phases that she went through as a choreographer. And finally, I will now like to, to, add, to, to answer the second part of your question. I'm just going to read you a paragraph from the very end of the book where I explain why it was where it ends. And this would be about 1952. Return to health through power of will, adhering to the spirit of Schopenhauer encountered long ago and a creative rebirth after diverging from Eric Hawkins, her husband. Martha Graham faced 40 years of immersive exploration among archetypes, mythology, romance, the feminine mystique, Americana, and satire, spanning from the cosmic to the intimate, revealing riches in concert dances beyond the boundaries of this book. St. Joan's Seraphic Dialogue, Canticle for Innocent Comedians, the epic Clytemnestra, 
in Battle Garden, Acrobats of God, Episodes, Secular Games, Cortege of Eagles, Lucifer, Acts of Light, The Rite of Spring, and Maple Leaf Red. And then it goes into your, the next paragraph is your, is kind of like a segue to your book, Global Ambassadorship and Tours Through Continental Europe, the UK, Asia, the Middle East, and the Far East, et cetera, et cetera. So but my point is that in terms of the repertory, um, and that's why I mentioned that very careful, carefully chosen description of the different types of areas that she explored, the archetype, mythology, romance, etc. So I felt like by the time I reached this point in her life, she had explored and explicated these major categories of the kinds of dances that she wanted to do. And therefore, I decided to name the dances that were coming because they should not be ruled out. And, uh, and hoping, frankly, and I've said this in some of my talks, hoping that this realm will, you know, as you have written about, that this realm will become more open to scholarship going forward. Because the other subtext of the ending of my book is that, and I know you would agree with me, Victoria, that the, the shelf, as it were, the shelf on Martha Graham is still so woefully inadequate. I feel that intelligent discourse on Martha Graham, and I spent a lot of time, and so did you, and so have a couple of other people, but there's, there's so much more to be done. There, and, and you ha actually mentioned in your talk the opening of the archive, the Library of Congress, and how you went in, went in on that. And, you know, in the last couple of years, the Martha Graham resources, which is the archive that was held by a Martha Graham dance company, was purchased by the New York Public Library in New York. And they've just, last week, uh, they issued the um, finding aid for that archive, which is now open. You know, you have to get permission. I mean, you have to sign up to look at it, but so now we're having another, another sort of huge publicly opened up archive of Martha Graham. And I just hope this is the beginning of, of a cascade of scholarship. Yeah, it's it's really I think it's fantastic because just as um, my book was inspired by the opening of the Library of Congress archive, um, the Graham resources archive was closed to anyone who didn't have money yeah. while right. I was doing my research, um, which I wrote about in the footnotes. Um, yes. But I and I think by, you know, kind of uh, running between Washington and New York, um, you'll have people, a, a scholar can have a pretty good sense of, um, of, of the woman. Um, so I, yes, I think that the, the opening of the archive, um, the resources archive, um, is, is a very good thing. I cataloged some of that, some of that information. Um, oh, yeah. yep, sat on my knees in the Graham, um, in the, in the, in the Graham studios, putting things into archival plastic because they were disintegrating. And, um, so we're so lucky now that they've decided to, to give that over. Um, it's very exciting. Um, so tell me how, you know, there are the two biographies and the autobiography, um, and I, in quotes, <laughs> um, of Graham, um, one, um, but you know, what the, the, the 
critical um, book by Agnes DeMille, um, who knew her. Um, how did you use um, some of these other resources, the truth of which have, has been called into question, not only by me, but by, you know, uh, Lynn Garofola um, and others. Um, and, and again, it's through no fault of Agnes DeMille's, but, you know, many of the dancers give, you know, everyone tells tall tales. Um, so how did you work through what's already been written on Graham um, and well, integrate that into your book? Yeah, well, you all, another couple of people, Marcia Siegel wrote that piece, Marthology, for I think it was the Partisan Review or the Hudson Review, one of those. And then Don McDonough, who died a few years ago, but who before he passed away, he gave me access to his papers at the New York Public Library. And he wrote a similar article um, about, let's just put it this way, Martha Graham. I remember when I first started to listen to interviews with her and Don McDonough, who wrote the book in 1970. I it's the first sort of attempt at a full-length biography, and it holds up very well. Really, a very, a very good, a very good book. But um, she finally, under great duress, granted him an appointment to come to her apartment, and she gave him one interview, which is like just shy of an hour and a half, which I listened to. New York Public Library, and I think it's emblematic. The reason I'm mentioning it is because it goes to your question. Um, the window was open, and there was a sound of traffic going by, and horns honking, and wind—you know, wind—and she had a drink of some kind. She was had a glass. Of, well, there were ice cubes clinking around in the glass, and she would every so often she would get up and leave where they were sitting, you know, it was, it was done on like a, one of those little reel-to-reel cassette tape recorders probably. And she would get up to go get a piece of sculpture or a book to show to him and she would walk out of the room and there'd be this long hissing sound while she was puttering around out there. And her answers were very, I, I hesitate to use circumspect. It's not exactly the right word. It's more, cloud, they were cloudy circumspect. They were kind of like like encased in a fog. And their references, they, they sort of time-based references were very, very intuitive and off. Um, that's number one. Number two, blood memory had the same effect on me, motivational effect on me, that Man Ray's by autobiography, Self-Portrait, which was called the Man Ray, my second book, well, I start with the first book, William Carlos Williams's autobiography, also inspired me, and Man Ray's autobiography, because in both cases, they were written in extremists, and they were written sort of top of mind, from top of mind, and they were also written from the point of view of somebody wanting to create a persona in his own terms. And Blood Memory, when I read that, like way back in the beginning, that was just another sort of addition to the recipe of motivation for me because it was a kind of like a, it felt like a collage. Actually, 
Martha Graham's Gilded Cage. That's your essay, right? Okay, so that I I agree with with what you say there because when I was reading this, I felt like it was a taste up, like a each, each thing in and of itself had some degree of interest, but there was no narrative through line, and there was no consistent voice, and there was and the juxtapositions of occurrences sort of like surreal in a way kind of like to go from a to c and then back and then to b and then l and such and such and such um and then you know the procrastination the long period of time that it took okay that was that and then with demille okay so what happened with demille was was a little more interesting and i got i give credit to her because with demille what happened was i was doing research on her encounters with Martha and how she tried to get into the company. Uh, well, first her upbringing and her her ballet and her showbiz aspect, which was a sort of a, a sort of like a a warning sign to me in terms of when she encountered Martha from a more of a showbiz background, and then when she tried to get into the company and she never let her in, and she told her to go up and you know you learn more by yourself. And, Etc. So first I read that. And then in the New York Public Library, there were there was an archive of um, Agnes DeMille's work papers on her book, um, which I looked at, at. And that's where I got this, that's where I got the first sense of the emotionality and the con the emotional conflict, which is not necessarily bad in a biography. And I have to just footnote myself. I don't mean to, I think this, this really is important because when you're writing a biography, you do get emotionally connected to, to your subject and you do find yourself sucked in and you find yourself wishing that you could talk to the person and you had, you know, with all these imaginations and fantasies and, and Agnes DeMille's notes were filled with uh, struggles of when she first, when Martha Graham and she, started to grow apart and she couldn't get her on the phone and she could and Martha Graham started telling other people not to talk to her and then she basically shut her out and then she basically had to decide there was too much Agnes had to decide there was too much baggage and she would just have to wait till Martha Graham died before she published the book so this is not to take away from the I feel there's a certain uh, very poignant a live feeling to a lot of the way that Agnes DeMille describes Martha Graham's life. But on the other hand, it's interfered with by this sense that the person who's writing it is having such a deep-seated conflict about her own affections or disaffections mm -hmm. with Martha Graham. So I, I really loved the book. I enjoyed it. It was fun. There was some great little vignettes of Louis Horst and Martha Graham in there. But um, again, I guess I felt like it wasn't, I don't mean this to sound, I, I felt like it wasn't up to my scholarly standards, quite frankly. I mean, you have to tell a good story, but you also have to get the facts straight. So that's kind of my feeling about these various other things that are out there and how I approach my own book, because I often feel like my biographies are in Edison was the same way. Uh, Thomas Edison was a corrective 
And I think I, Edison is a good analogy to Martha Graham because I said of Thomas Edison, I said his own persona was his greatest invention. I feel that a lot of that applies to Martha Graham too. And that you want to honor that. See, you want to honor the persona that the person wants to have themselves known by, but you also want to want to sort of get it straight to the outside world who hasn't bought into the mythos and hasn't been a dancer and hasn't heard all the other stories. Both things have to be honored. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, that's, that's great. I think that's, that's very, very interesting. Um, you know, one of the things that um, has driven me away from writing um, any kind of biography of Graham was just for me, the sheer volume of, of factual, um, how can I call them, um, you know, kind of um, breaks in the road, you know, um, and even, you know, even the date of first performances <laughs> and, you know, who was the first one to take over one of Martha's roles? And I mean, you know, everybody, who was the first person to get Clytemnestra? You know, everyone's got a different story and it takes a lot of um, footwork um, and um, needlework, shall we say, to parse together the truth or the yeah. factual truth, right? Right. Um, so how, you know, when you found that one person had said one thing is a fact and another person that said something else is a fact, and then you found a third thing that was factual, um, how did you, how do you cope with the, um, the weaving, the interweaving? Because people don't say things that aren't true purposely. They have the, you know, they have their own agenda, right? So um, how do you, how did you deal with that as their biographical story versus Martha's biographical story? But then they were all interwoven, right? Well, I think that that's a wonderful question. I'm going to start, I'll just give, the answer I will give is based upon this, this apocryphal statement, movement never lies, you know, Movement never lies. So I went back and I I won't I won't go into the book. It'd take me too long to find it right now, but I went back to find as many iterations of that statement from as many different people as I could intentionally. And I made that part of the story because I I I told the story of the phrase movement never lies. Just so for those who are listening, of which there are many who are not familiar and not, you should, one shouldn't make this assumption. So her father was a physician and um, he was actually an alienist, which is a sort of 
antiquated word for a psychiatrist. He worked in an, in an asylum in a, a north, a, a big hospital north of her home. And he worked with, I guess we would call them um, people with emotional disturbances of the time. And which, which were treat, which was treated much more differently then than it is now. If you realize that, I mean, when Interpretation of Dreams was published in 1899, Martha Graham's father had already been practicing like a, a form of psychiatry for 15 years. So that's where he was coming from. But anyway, um, so one time they had a, they had a young lady come home with, I guess she was a, con, a, a patient that Dr. Graham was consulting with. And, and she was in his home office and then they were having dinner as a family. So he invited this young lady to stay for dinner. And Martha, a little girl, she noticed um, that the young lady moved her body in certain ways. And it just seemed kind of strange to her. And after dinner, her father, you know, she talked to her father about it. And um, he explained to her how you can tell people's feelings from the way they hold their body. I guess it would be kind of like kinesthetic awareness or body language of today. Anyways, so she said that never left her. And I think that the core of that is very good because it helps explain a lot about her technique. But as the years went by, um, that phrase became mutated and transformed. The body, the body tells the truth and, you know, movement is a way of being and all these kind of mutate more, more things and mutations of this, depending on who you talk to. So I sort of put that at the very beginning so that later on, when I talk about the reactions among the core of these, these very highly embodied, um, strong women of her company, which was all female until the, the shall we say, intervention of Eric Hawkins in 19... 37, uh, I landed on that as a way to show how the young, the women in her company reacted to his arrival and how there was a tremendous range of mostly anim animosity toward him. And so there was that, as you say, disruption in the road. I think that was a very big disruption choreographically, emotionally, you know, everyone got very jealous because Martha, we were losing Martha and she was moving away from us. She didn't belong to us anymore. And why did she have to mess up this sisterhood and all these things? So that thirdly, um, when Martha Graham was partnering with Eric Hawkins in Paris and she hurt herself, and I'm using it in that way because she hurt her knee. And I came into it with this backlog again, sort of against Eric Hawkins that he was manhandling her and pushed her around and dropped her on purpose and all these things. And I felt like that has to be included, yes, but that is not that is not the actual there I really went out of my way to 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 find the actual occurrence and what actually happened that night when she was when he was lifting her because they've done it a hundred times and they all felt what they were doing. And she landed slightly she landed, she says she landed slightly more awkwardly on her leg and that uh, 
know, that it wasn't an intentional grievance being acted out as if Eric Hawkins was adhering to some kind of typecasting as the guy who came in and disrupted the company and was kind of like pulling the china shop and ruined Martha Graham's balance and caused her to become depressed for three or four years. And all of that was kind of laid at his doorstep. I mean, I think in, what I'm trying to say, Victoria, is that I told some of these apocryphal stories, I felt they should be told like in a Rashomon way. You know, Rashomon is my go-to for that because by that I mean a story that is told in five or six or seven different ways going around the actual occurrence and getting all the different prismatic points of view. And then I arrive at what I feel based upon my survey of the evidence as it were. Of what really so both have to be included because that adds to the understanding of what kind of a person Martha Graham was because you see she had a public face a public facing face she had a, a stage you know made up uh, projecting theatricality face she had a classroom facing face and metier way of doing things she had uh, a few uh, I talked to Eureka, who just recently passed away, Eureka Kikuchi, who was one of her big stars in the 40s. And she said to me that, I said, well, you and Martha were very close. And she said, well, I never forgot this. She said, we were friendly, but we were not friendly. Friendly. We were, she said, she treated us like we were different colors on her palette as an artist. And she used us for different purposes. But there again, and just to give, just to add one little point to this. So another thing that struck me about different versions of things was the number of times that different dancers in different interviews from her vintage years, like 29 to 48 or so, who talked about how they would be rehearsing a piece and like Anna Sokolo or um, you know, some iconic dancer would, I'm thinking of Anasakala in particular, she said that she made a movement and Martha stopped everything and said, okay, everybody, you see the way Anna did that extreme movement. We're going to keep that. I want you to keep that. We're going to take that and we're going to keep that. So although Martha Graham was the choreographer of the piece, she often Elicit, she would often make use of a movement that came from the bodies of her dancers and integrated into the piece. And the number of those kinds of stories are very important because that showed me how these women um, were, uh, were honored on a momentary basis by her from time to time and they never forgot that. That's like the thing where you said you were seized by it and I was seized by it. Well, the number of times I've heard people say, like Janet Elbow told me the time that Martha saw her, she said she was way, sitting way in the back. She was a Juilliard. She was shy. And she was like 1970 or something like that, way back then. And she didn't want to get too close. And then they started moving around. And Martha Graham looked at that. You, back there, come over, come up here. Show us what you just did. <laughs> and that was, then. she's 50 years later. She's still there. I'm just remarking on what that was to the mind. Yeah.
yeah, no, it's um, phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And I, I, I think um, all of her great dancers have those moments where she yeah. had you, um, yeah. right? Um, I had I had a moment when I was in class with her and she pointed at me and she said, where have you been? And um, I had actually, it was in the 70s and I had been studying on the side with Bertram Ross, who had been summarily tossed out. Um, and I must have done something that reminded her of Bert. Um, but um, I mean, it was absolutely, I will never, I will go to my grave remembering that moment uh, when she, when I was picked out. Um, so I think, yes, I think that's, that's a, a wonderful, a, a wonderful way to, to look at these problems. Um, you know, you mentioned, um, the, the the kind of the elephant in the room with um, her, her talk with Don McDonough. Um, I also, I think Don's book was wonderful. And I think um, yeah. and he was so generous with me as a scholar. You know, I came to him knowing nothing and he was just incredibly generous as was his wife. Um, yeah. uh, a real loss. But um, uh, so, um you know, so, um, you know, one of the, the questions is what one of the things that he stayed away from very distinctly, and I had to use just because I went into later years. Um, uh, but, you know, the issue of the ice, the glass, the glass with ice <laughs> clinking in the background. Um, and, um, you know, she writes in Blood Memory that um, that when she really started drinking was was after Eric and the fall. Um, she doesn't say the fall, but it, she she says it was Eric. Um, you know, how do you how, how do you come to terms with that? Um, uh, because you know your book ends before she puts down alcohol. Um, uh, you know, I think there are all sorts of ideas about. You know, I certainly saw things on the tour. Um, that would lead me to believe that she had it somewhat under control um, in the 50s. Um, so what? how do you deal with it, or do you not need to? I think the, that the what I tried to do, because what I, my sort of literary uh, provenance came to the fore when I was at the Library of Congress, and I was given access to the entire correspondence between Eric and Martha when they were, quote, breaking up. And the chap the title of my chapter, The Breakup, I have the words breakup in quotes. I was thinking about F. Scott Fitzgerald's book, The Breakup. But when I when I wrote that chapter, I put breakup in quotes because and I tried to get behind it's very, very hard. I've never, you know, none of the books I've ever written before have I come, have I had to, I mean, I've had relationships, um, husband and wife relationships and lovers and, you know, various kinds of interpersonal relationships in my other books. But I never came across something that had, was almost like a, a palimpsest of layers of different tissues of meaning that just get more and more complicated the deeper that you went. So I, it took me, it was very laborious, but that's not, that doesn't make any difference because that's something I shouldn't have just said because nobody reads a book because they think it's so laborious that that's when you should read it. Oh my God, they put so much work into it. I'm never going to read it. 
that's obviously not why people read books. But anyway, um, so I took all these letters um, uh, and I tried to make a I tried to make a journey through the separation of two people that I feel as I'm talking about it now, I feel very strongly was extremely ambivalent separation that, okay, so let's just, let's say, you know, it didn't really start when with the injury, it was almost baked in from the moment they started getting, they started getting together, the moment they started having an affair with each other. Um, because the issue I struggled with the most, and I'm, I was I talked to a lot of dancers about this partnering because you know you have the artifice of partnering on stage where you have your acting and you you know which I mean, theatrically you're playing a role of let's just say lovers or yeah let's just say that so you're playing that role and you're quote in love with. The character, this character is in love with the, the other character. And then you add to that the layer that the male character in this ballet, Miss Dance, is being has been choreographed by the partner he's dancing with. The woman he's dancing with, who he's a partner with off stage, is also the person who constructed the dance that he is quote unquote acting in. And so the traditional role, the support role is already being inferentially undermined by the female choreographer who believes most strongly in female empowerment. And so even though he's the male, she views herself as the driving force of the performance. So you have that. Then on the part of, of the male, Eric Hawkins, and having read his jur journals, I know how much, how insecure he felt about that coming and coming off of Balanchine, where when he was with Balanchine, he was being encouraged by him and by Lincoln Kirstein because of his robust physique and how beautiful he looked and how statuesque he was um so he broke from them because he wanted to basically quote do his own thing and they told him maybe he should go seek out martha graham because she was teaching a june course maybe you should try that anyway so then you add up into that mixture you add the fact that eric hawkins at the very same time was writing sketches for all these other dances that he wanted to do with these very strong male protagonists um, where he would be the leader and she wouldn't even be in them at all. That was in his dream life of being a dancer. So I guess I'm saying that the dance of life and the dance on stage um, interpenetrated and complicated each other. And I feel that that is the most poignant part of the I guess I've used that word already. I would say the most unresolved part of the story because toward the end, she was writing to him that she said, you know, feel free to come and see me, but don't feel obligated. Perhaps you should keep on teaching. 
the um, students because she knew that Eric Hawkins liked working with the young people and he was such a good role model to the boys who were getting into dance. So there was a, a, a huge swirl of conflict for their entire relationship. And that's how I left it. Um. You know, one of the things that I saw in um, the in Bertram Ross's papers um, was this the funniest quote, um, which was Martha saying to Bert, um, "I've never had better sex than with a gay man," <laughs> which is, I think, just phenomenal. Um, and um, what do you do with the questions of sexuality? between the two of them. What do I do with the questions of sexuality? Well, I think the questions of sexuality between a lot of the people that I write about, that's a good example of, I mean, that's a good example of another dimension of dance, uh, dance writing that is very, very open to more exploration. Because I think that that the te- a lot of the tension, the sexual tension um, that you feel when you're watching a dance on stage comes from this uh, necessity. As one of the dancers I, I talked to, Oliver Tobin, the head of the resources and was also danced in the company. One time we had a long talk about dance love on stage and um, Oliver was gay and many of his colleagues were gay and they had to be in the position of portraying romantic heroes. And um, it was a big challenge, but to meet the demands of the choreography, that's what one has to do. Interesting. Um, So in terms of, um, you know, Martha Graham as a figure, it, you know, she used to be, you know, the, the Gardner book equates her with Einstein and Picasso. Um, you know, she was known as the the high priestess and the first the first lady of modern dance. Um, you know, she used to she had a postage stamp, for goodness sake. You know, she used to be, um, you know, this an icon. But now, do you find yourself having to explain who she is? See, now this is why and while you were asking me that question. I, one day I realized that um, I had been writing about a woman. Yes, in terms of her, shall we say, artistic persona was a singular force, you know. And all, all I know, all the pictures of her by herself, sort of being herself. Uh, with like even the cover of my book, she's kind of like has this aura of light around the Edward Steichen photograph. And yet, and yet, when I looked at all the different collaborations and all the different artists and writers and painters and composers that she either worked with, read the works of from like cover to cover, or actually was inspired by their works by T.S. Eliot and Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman, just to name three off the top of my head, and all the composers that she met with who had to come to terms with her desire to make the dance and the music be more equivalents. And I realized that she was one of the most chronic, uh, 
you will, collaborators and researchers and um, filament-sending outers of modern times. And that is what I want another through line of my book to show her emotional and intellectual and collaborative allegiances with so many other modern figures. I'm just going to very, very quickly read just a few examples of some of these relationships that I talk about in the book, starting with Kandinsky, who was, and my, my belief is that Kandinsky is even much, is a much better analogy for Martha Graham than Picasso. That's just what I think in my beginning, I talk about that. Um, <clears throat> Imogene Cunningham, Stuart Davis, Marcel Duchamp, Walter Evans, Isamu Noguchi, Edward Weston, Frank Lloyd Wright, composers Samuel Barber, Ernest Block, Carlos Chavez, Aaron Copeland, of course, Henry Cowell, George Gershwin, Paul Hindemith, Eric Satie, Ned Warren, Arnold Schoenberg, Virgil Thompson, writers and poets, Mark Crane, Charles Baudelaire, Joseph Campbell, E. Cummings, T.S. Eliot, Lincoln Kirstein, Thomas Mann, Harriet Monroe, Marion Moore, Frederick Nietzsche, Ezra Pound, Dylan Thomas, Walt Whitman, William Carlos Williams, Virginia Woolf, and so on. I mean, the, the, at one point, I decided, I guess I was writing about um, Dark Meadow, which is one of the deeply archetypal ballet dances, and I thought that I would like to try to replicate her research methodology for just one dance. Because as I went through her corpus of work and I read her journals and her letters and her notes and her instructions to the to the composers and so forth, I thought about an image of a cornucopia with this huge gaping opening at one end and a tiny, tiny little outcome at the other. You know, as Doris Humphrey used to say, all well, dances are too long. And um, but Martha Graham would spend, I mean, she wrote down the call letters to books from the library that she took out by the armful and brought back to her apartment to do research in for these various these dances. So I took Dark Meadow and I said, I'm going to try, I'm going to, try to replicate her research agenda, <laughs> as we say in academia. <laughs> And after about four months, I said, you know, you better forget, you better drop that simulacrum because you have to write a whole book of your own. But it just gave me a sense of how much, how learned and how erudite and how omnivorous a reader she was. So, yeah, the fact is to, to go back, and this is my roundabout way of answering your question, because a lot of people, it kind of stops with, the description that you gave at the beginning, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, the Statue of Liberty. I've seen that. And, you know, it's kind of, she even looks like that in a couple of my book. I mean, she has one hand raised up. You know, it's kind of like this, like a colossus stride the dance world with her legs spread and her arm up reaching toward the heavens or whatever. Oh, yes, Martha Graham, you know, kind of like, um, oh, yes, uh, a statue. Oh, yes. An icon. Oh yes, she was really, she was really a great figure, you know. But that's fine. But I'm telling you, Victoria, there's so much more. Well, you know this already, but I'm just speaking to the wider audience. One of the reasons I 
wanted to dive into this was to show her connectedness with this really uh, and period of the growth of making it new in culture in the 20th century. And she's an integral player in this. She's the connective tissue for me between all of them. That's great. That's phenomenal. Um, so um, in the few minutes we've got left, um, two questions. Um, one is, you know, what, what, what do you want to say that I haven't asked you about? And the second is um, of, you know, it seems as though your book um, has a number of reader bases. Um, and, you know, who, what do you want each reader base to get out of the book? What, what, what do you, how do you want people to come away from your book? Thank you for asking that. It's really um, generous of you to come around to that because I think that is a question that if you ask any, dare I say, artist, they're going to have to take a deep breath. And because as you know, as a writer yourself, um, and that's how I'll answer the question because when I started, when I, Every book I've written, I've written it because I wanted to, I just felt like I wanted to, I wanted to do it. It wasn't like, um, like one should do it or it needs to be, you know, there needs to be another book on this subject or that subject because you, that's not enough to launch upon something, especially when you take on a very big figure. And what happened with this book, and I haven't mentioned her now, but I will, my editor, Vicki Wilson. Tori Wilson at Knopf was with me for the whole decade. And um, at one point, she said to me, you have to take the reader in hand. Just because, and this is the answer to the second part of the question about who, who it's for. You know, you get so immersed in your mission to do the thing that you, you Temporarily, in my case, forget that you your number one goal is to tell a good story, but it's nonfiction. So it has to be a good story, but it has to be bolstered by factual information, which in and of itself, you know, is not that galvanizing. You have to galvanize, you have to synthesize the facts so they become galvanizing, but they also remain true to the life and the number one, I would love, love it if people came to the general reader, who is what, who is like, who I like to think of, like um, a fairly educated, fairly cultured, but not, you know, inordinately or obsessively, a person who's interested in the human condition, as I like to say, a person who likes people and likes human nature and is intrigued by what makes people act and say and do the things that they do. And also a person who's interested in the imagination and how people have to find different ways to express themselves. So that kind of person would come to this book with an open mind and they would have an intrigued curiosity about this person and then by the end they would feel like they had come to know that their life had been had been added to by coming to know the person this way. 
that they now go back. Maybe they would go back. They don't have to be a, a dance aficionado, but maybe they'll go back and try going to some things that they would go to. Or maybe when they go to a museum and they see some of the artists I mentioned and they look at them in a different way or they hear music by the composers I write about and they think of them in a somewhat different way in terms of a different perspective on them. That's what I would really love to have happen. Um, and I think in terms of anything else that I might speak about that we haven't spoken about today, I think the, the thing about Martha Graham, this might sound like a contradiction, but she was a tremendous inspiration to me as a writer because I felt often felt like I was in the, in the, in the thick of it and it was, quote, you know, quote unquote, too hard. And oh my God, I'm never gonna make it. And you know, uh, so it's the feelings that all, all artists or writers I speak of most intimately have that feeling. But then I thought, well, look what she did with no money and very humble living conditions as one room apartment in Greenwich Village with an old burning stove and a little cot, you know, you know, ha- um, no real furniture. And, no real kitchen or anything like that. And she just went ahead and did what she had to do because it was her inner obligation. And so I had to do what a lot of dancers have said to me they do, which is to dig more deeply into yourself and just find it, find it and find it in there and get it and do it. And that is how she inspired me because that's the kind of person she was. That's phenomenal. Um, Thank you so much. Um, I think that's a great place to conclude. Um, I'm Victoria Phillips, and I'm here with Neil Baldwin. And please run to your local bookstore or your computer and um, buy this wonderful biography um, of Martha Graham. Thank you so much.